So for the past several weeks, I've actually been planning on jumping back into the book of First Peter, which is where we've been. We started this several months ago. We've been in a series, if you are new here, uh, going through this great little letter called First Peter. Uh, and this past week, as I was preparing um, on my own devotional time, I was reading this passage, and I, just, and I just felt like the Lord just kept bringing back to my mind over and over and over again just this theme that had to do with encountering Jesus, or what happens when the risen, resurrected Jesus encounters people. One of the things I've learned over the years as a church planter and a follower of Jesus is you got to be willing and able to pivot sometimes. In other words, to be flexible. There's going to be times and occasions where Jesus calls for flexibility and asks us to follow him and to kind of go against maybe even some of the plans that we have set in motion or set in play. And that's part of what it means to be a disciple. Part of what it means to really just say my life is devoted, not to my ideal, not to my agenda, not to my time planner, not to my calendar. My, my life is devoted to, to Jesus. And there's going to be occasions where in that process, he says, go this way, and we have a decision. Well, I've been planning for this way, and we can either continue on that way, or we can just say, I'm going to go the way Jesus, you've called us to. That's kind of what I'm doing right now. As best as I can. So I want to read uh, a handful of passages um, out of the book of John chapter 20 and then John chapter 21. Um, so think of this moment together as just kind of a special uh, focus upon these encounters that Jesus has with his disciples. Now obviously last week was Easter and we uh, gathered together in this parking lot, and we proclaimed the message of Jesus, and it was awesome, and it was great weather, and it was crowded as far back as the parking lot goes, and today is much smaller and much colder and much different, but you're here. So I commend you all for making it a point to be able to be here and join with us. Um, and what I want to do as we jump into this passage of text to be thinking about this idea that Jesus goes out of his way, and he encounters people. He encounters people, uh, which means he is here today. And his desire, his aim, is to encounter our lives, to walk into our scenarios, no matter what types of circumstances we may find ourselves, to meet with us in those places. Last week, we looked at the resurrection of Jesus and how that changed everything. Um, what really grabbed my attention as I was reading this passage and these chapters was even after the event we call the resurrection, there were these pockets of disciples, followers of Jesus, that were at various stages of belief and acceptance and embrace of what God had in store for, for them. Even after his resurrection, even after this profound impact of what he had done, and it really kind of challenged me to realize, I think in a lot of ways, that's kind of how the church has always been throughout all history. There's always been these pockets of people that, on the one hand, wholeheartedly embrace the new life of the resurrected Jesus. But at the same time, there may be others that have kind of been like, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. I, I think he's God, and I think he'll come again, and I think he'll do what he does. But there are oftentimes this reluctance for us to fully embrace the life that he has for us or to live into it. Or there is these pessimisms or skepticisms or cynicisms that kind of define us. Uh, we live in an age now that's wanting to have experts define for us the faith, who Jesus is, what he really stood for, what he really taught. 
rather than just simply going back to the text and listening to what Jesus has to say. And I want to encourage us as we listen to these stories to just let the text sculpt and shape our understanding of who Jesus is. So really there's just three things I want to do right now, um, aside from just this narratival reading, is we'll just kind of read through it. This is These are gospel accounts, which means that there are these little cameo uh, scenarios of Jesus' life after his resurrection, encountering the people that he had relationship with. Like I said, some were in disbelief, some were straight up doubting, some were uh, losing focus on what God had intended for them, and they were off doing other things other than what Jesus had intended for them. But one of the thing, one of the things that we see Jesus doing over and over again is summoning them back to Himself, and that's that'll come really clearly in the text. And then, secondly, I'll just make some comments, some commentary as we read the text, and then we'll end with some challenges as we conclude. Just some challenges that the, I think the text will naturally raise to the surface for us to consider and think about. So hopefully that sets up the stage for what I want to do. So if anything, if you want the most simplistic form of just understanding of everything I'm trying to say, this is story time with, with Pastor B. Grab your Bibles, open it up, just chill, listen, encounter the resurrected Jesus in these stories. All right, I'm going to read this because my Bible's flapping around in the wind right now. I'm sorry, you guys are so cold right now. I'm freezing. Anyways, we're going to do this together because we're all in this together, right? All right, here we go. I'm going to pick it up at John chapter 20, verse 24. Um, Again, like I said, these are like these little stories. In fact, I'm going to jump ahead to verse 26 and then we'll go backwards. And then we're going to jump down into... John chapter 21, we're going to look at another cameo, then we're going to go backwards, you just got to follow me, and then we're going to end with this little segment uh, at the end of chapter 20. It all makes sense, promise you. So let's begin by taking a look at verse 26, and why this is so relevant, I think, for us today, because here we are, basically seven days out from Easter. So even after Jesus rose again from the dead, we see... These pockets of people still encountering the resurrected Jesus. So here's what it says. Verse 26, chapter 20 of the book of John. Eight days later, his disciples were inside and Thomas was with them. So just pause real quick. This is going to be a little cameo story about this guy by the name of Thomas. So according to the the character sheet, like who is Thomas? Why is he important? Why is he significant? This is where we want to go backwards. Take a look at verse 24. John gives us this little debriefing, this little backstory, just in case you're wondering who who Thomas is and why Thomas is important to what he's about to tell us. Verse 24 says, now Thomas, he was one of the 12. He was called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of his nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. <laughs> this is what the text wants us to know, what John wants us to be aware of with regard to Thomas. Thomas is a classic skeptic, pessimist, cynic. He's very cynical. He's kind of got this mindset like, look, I know they're talking about Jesus rising in from the dead. I know there are those that have seen him. I haven't seen him. I haven't sensed him. I haven't felt him. Maybe that's where some of us are today. I think it's important for us to even consider. I think 
especially in our Western construct of Christianity, we tend to think of having an encounter or an experience or feeling Jesus. I was listening to someone recently as they were talking about their experience growing up in the church and the expectations that they had on God. They had these expectations that they were going to experience Jesus. And what they discovered throughout moments of their life, there were these long stints where there was no experience of Jesus. They didn't feel him. They didn't sense him. They didn't know he was there. And as this gal that I was listening to her podcast, she says, that actually led me to a journey of exploring what she described as deconstruction. Maybe some of you are familiar with that term. Maybe some of you are here today and you are in a process of deconstructing your faith. Maybe you've already gone through the process of deconstructing. I'm so glad you're here. I truly, truly believe that there's space in the church, at the table, for people of all shapes, all sizes, all various strengths of confidence in God or weaknesses of their confidence in God. And what we see with regard to Thomas is that he's this classic cynic, classic pessimist, who's just like, I, I don't feel Jesus, I don't see him, and unless I feel him and see him and touch him, I'm not going to believe And one thing I found that was really fascinating about this gal's story is that she says, because I had this mindset that I needed to feel Jesus, the fact that I wasn't feeling Jesus, sensing Jesus, that created a conflict for me. And I would like to suggest to you that first and foremost, what we have been given is a confidence, not a feeling. Feelings are awesome. When they come, when they happen, they're great. You cannot build your future, your faith, your confidence in God on feelings. That's what Thomas begins to discover. So Thomas says, verse 27 again, then he said, Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. And then he says, see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side Do not disbelieve, but believe. Verse 28, then Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The Greek word that gets used by John here is the word pistis. It means faith or confidence. Uh, Another word that you can use to describe this is loyalty. I'm loyal. There's a loyalty that I have that I've devoted to Jesus. We oftentimes in our modern framework tend to think of faith as being nothing more than uh, a mental construct. Like I believe in a fact or a bit of data. It does include that. It's not less than that, but it's far more than that. And this is what Jesus says to Thomas. He says, blessed are are, are you because you've, you've seen and believed, but Really more blessed are those who have not seen and yet who have believed. So pause and think about that. Who are those who have not seen and yet believed? That's you. If, if you are in a place of trusting, you may have not have felt Jesus. You may not have had incredible experiences with Jesus. But there is a simple confidence that you have in your heart in your life, in your mind towards Jesus. You may have always had this. You know, oftentimes I hear people describe, like, I don't really have much of a testimony. I wasn't a drug addict, or I wasn't someone who's messed up or strung out some sort of bad stuff throughout life. That's okay. My, my wife has a story where she grew up 
being deeply devoted to Jesus her entire life, never had a crazy testimony in terms of an experience like that or encounter. But I I would honestly say that she's had even a a greater testimony than even many of ours because, and definitely than mine for sure, because throughout her whole life, she just remained loyal to, to Jesus, faithful to Jesus. And I find that really fascinating. It's awesome when you think about that. That blessed are those who believe even though they don't see. And this is what we see that Jesus makes his claim. Now I want to jump ahead to another little cameo to turn real quick to the book of John 21, verse 1, and follow along. It says this, verse 1, after this, Jesus then revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples, they were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into a boat. That night they caught nothing. Verse 4. So pause real quick and just take a look at the cast of characters that John wants us to identify that is part of this next encounter, this post-resurrection encounter with Jesus. So we see Peter, uh, who we will get back into his letter next week, uh, a guy by the name of Thomas, Nathaniel, James and John, he just describes these as the sons of Zebedee. And then it says two other disciples, which I just described as D1 and D2. Disciple one, disciple two. So seven people in total are all part of this next little scenario that's taking place. So here is this community of once faithful, loyal followers of Jesus, now post-resurrection, where are they at? Well, we're told that they're actually up in the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee is about 90 or so miles away from Jerusalem. It's pretty, pretty far as far as walking is concerned. Now, time frame, uh, this is about a week after Jesus has resurrected from the dead. So the question is, is where is Peter? Now, what I find really fascinating about this little cameo appearance, the, the cast of characters that are listed for us here, In just a short while, these people are going to be the main ones that will be used by God to found and launch this global movement called the church. They will be back in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit will fall upon them. They will begin to preach. Peter will stand up and preach the gospel to 3,000 people. And then just a few weeks later, 5,000 people come to faith. So something profound is about to happen. So the big question is, right now, where are all these guys? Hey, what's up? Christy? Nice to meet you. So glad you're here. You're all good. You need some friends? We have some friends that would love to chill and hang out with you. So we've got some elders that would love to come chill and just... We're so glad you're here. It's awesome. Nice. Nice. Hey, listen. Some of our leaders are going to come to you right now, and we're going to pray for you right now. Can we do that? Good. So glad you're here. Glad you're here. Listen, we're the church, guys. It happens sometimes. People come. They've got some challenges. I want to pray for this sister right now. Let's do it. Jesus, thank you for our sister who's here. God, you know what types of circumstances that have been a part of her life right now that has that have brought her here. We're so thankful that she's here. So Jesus, right now, bring peace, bring calm, bring healing, bring wholeness, 
bring deliverance, whatever it is, God, that you know what's needed for our sister. Please, right now, meet her right where she's at. Help her to know how loved by you she is right now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church family, as soon as we're done, you guys have a new family member to come and hang out and spend some time. Get to know. So make sure you do that. That's what we do. We love each other. Exactly. Two more are gathered. There we go. So jump back in. Ready? So there's this host of characters that where are they at right now? Are they planting churches? Are they preaching Jesus? Are they out testifying to the great works of what Jesus has done? No, they're back basically doing what they started when Jesus found them. You might even say they kind of like reverted back to what they once were even before they encountered Jesus. In other words, we might in today's nomenclature say they're not living to their full potential, right? In other words, they're living not to the full extent of what God had envisioned for them. Why why do they do this? We don't know. All we have is really just conjecture. But here's what my suggestion is. I think probably what was happening after this traumatic experience of encountering the death and destruction of Jesus, this murder, this horrible event, these guys are tripping out. And at this point, they don't, they've only heard stories and rumors that Jesus is alive from the dead. And you can add Peter to this mix as well, because Peter seems to be leading this whole ordeal right here. But one thing that we know about Peter is that just the last thing that takes place before Peter meets with Jesus is he betrays him three times. So what's Peter dealing with? I, my guess would be Peter, on a psychological level, he's dealing with incredible regret, guilt, shame. He feels like a failure. He blew it. This is the guy that's, that's bold in his claims. This is the guy that stands up for what he believes in. This is the guy that promises to be your best friend, to be there for you, to never fail you. And yet Peter does the very thing that he swore he would never do. So he's pretty bummed. So what's Peter doing? He's back doing what was most comfortable and recognized. In other words, he just slipped back into his old lifestyle, which is below, different, other than what Jesus had intended for him. So what does Jesus do? Jesus goes into this scenario where Peter, as well as these others that are part of this whole situation, and he encounters them. I'm not going to read the rest of the story because we know that Jesus sits down uh, with Peter and he asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, of course I love you. And we, we, we know the story because we actually looked at this several months ago. But the point that I want to make is this, is that what I want for us to pause and think about is how Jesus goes out of his way to reach out to those that are either disenfranchised, those that are broken, those that have squander their life away, those that have returned back to their normal, convenient, simplistic, simple, familiar pathways and invites them into something different. Or even how Jesus goes to someone like Thomas, who is pessimistic, cynic, skeptical, deeply committed to feeling God and yet not feeling God. And Jesus comes into him into his relationship, into this scenario, and invites Thomas into a different way of being human. And this is what Jesus does. 
Now I want to finish with the little segment that we missed out. So go back to John chapter 20, take a look at verse 30, because this is going to be something I want to end the whole sequence of teaching on and just think about what is John trying to do for us and telling us these little cameos. Is John just giving us information just so that we can walk away and have head knowledge? It's a great story. It's a great story. Or is there something else that John wants us to absorb and take away from this? So take a look at what John chapter 20 verse 30 says. This. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in his book. Have you ever thought about this? Think about the life of Jesus. How rich, how full, how many scenarios, how many sequences of events that were happening and transpiring that did not get written down. Pause and think about that. Now think about being the one that actually was tasked with writing this sequence of events, what we call the Gospels. How do you choose? How do you pick and choose? How do you, through this process of selection, say, ah, not that story, but this story? What's a tough one. But what we see is that John tells us straight up, there's so much stuff that Jesus did that we just weren't able to tell you all about. But what he does tell us, verse 31, but these stories are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So there's a mouthful right here. I'm going to just pause, take a look at each little segment, and then we'll wrap it up. So what John says, I did give the selection of writings just enough, just what he obviously sensed the Holy Spirit, because there's this collaborative of the uh, uh, element that's happening between the Holy Spirit and John, who's writing this stuff down. And he says, this is what we gave you. We gave you this bit of information so that you would believe. Now, who is the you to whom John is writing? It's anybody that was not there. That's you. That's me. That's people from 300 years ago. That's people who are living in Nigeria from 300 years ago. This is people who are living in China right now or in Afghanistan or other places where the Bible might be banned. These are people that live, you know, 1,200 years ago. All throughout the past 2,000 years, John is saying, we did tell these stories to you so that you, whoever you are, wherever you are at, whatever geographical location you may find find yourself, whatever type of time lineage you may find yourself on that time scale so that you you would believe he straight up just tells him his agenda some of you might be like feel like brian you're trying to convince me to believe yes that's exactly but i'm not trying to convince you i'm just trying to tell you the stories because I, I hope by hearing these stories of realizing you have a God that loves you, that steps into our brokenness, our shame, our destruction, our ruin, by taking upon himself the forces of sin, darkness, and death, and alienation. And he allows that to do to him what it does to us daily. And then rises again from the dead. And then goes back into the world where we still reside in our pessimism, in our cynicism, in our brokenness, in our shame, in our shameful activity, in our regrets. And he comes to us and he stretches out his hand and says, come follow me. I have so much more for you than this. John says, I want you to believe. Now, what does he want us to believe? Just random stuff? Does he want us to just become spiritual? Not at all. 
John is not a relativist. John is not a modern. John has backbone. John wants us to understand that belief, just general belief, does not save us. But belief, confidence, that Jesus is the Christ. This is what he said. I'm just reading, I'm just reading the text. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ, you can, if you want, you can underline, circle that, put a little string, a little line, and then draw just the word king. It's the same word, same idea, king. Jesus is the king. What does it mean to have a sovereign over your life? Well, the most simplistic mean, meaning is that no matter what you think, no matter what American story you've chosen to identify with, what it means to make Jesus as king is that you're not. You're not the Lord of your, your life. The whole notion of living according to self-expressiveness or self-expression, that is not the ultimate end of our life. That might be the end of the American dream. That is not the aim of Jesus. Does that mean that we're to be drones? Of course not. It means that as we give our life to Jesus, he gives our life back to us to live out in the most expressive, most beautiful ways that we can ever imagine. But just because we make self-expression greater than Jesus, meaning we might get self-expression but not have life eternal. But if we have life eternal in Jesus, trust me, we will have self-expression. And what Jesus is saying is that I want you to believe that he is the king. He's the one to whom we bend the knee. We submit our lives, the sum total of all that we are, too. And then he says, and that he's the son of God. He's the one that bears image. This is, a, this is a language that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, where Adam was described as the son of God. Adam was supposed to be this quintessential example of what faithfulness to Yahweh God looks like. As you know, we all know the story of Adam because Adam's story is our story. We've all chosen a different path. And that path is not given us or delivered what it promised. The path that we have all followed promises life and love and hope and yet always only delivers death, alienation, and pain. But Jesus, on the other hand, he's the son of God, the true son of God, though faithful son of God, the one that has always rightly, properly reflected the image of his father. And then lastly, we see this little section. He says, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God's real aim, guys, for you and for me is life. Now, I don't know what you think about God or what type of definition or expectations you have of God. But unless the definition that you have about God is this. I mean, if you think of God as just being a cranky old man who's out to get you, he's looking for ways to destroy you, then, then my encouragement to you would be to reframe your understanding, your definition of who God is with this. He's actually a God that is deeply committed to your life. Life in his name. Life that's linked to his name. Life that looks like him, acts like him, lives like him, loves like him. This is what Jesus invites us into. So, as we close, I want you to think about where there's areas in your life right now where maybe the resurrected Jesus 
is wanting to encounter you where you're at. Which raises a question. Where are you at? What are the skepticisms or the cynicisms or the shame that you carry? Where are those things? Where are those points and places of pain that God wants to deliver you from and heal you and remove those scenarios, those impediments and rewire your heart so that you become faithfully committed to him so that you might have life in his name? So as we wrap this up, how about we all stand we're going to partake of communion together. We have some ushers that will be passing out the little communion elements. Please go ahead and uh, receive one of those if you would like to partake with us. And just hold on to it. We will all partake together. So you guys just have a few more moments in this chilly, chilly wind. And then you can go home. Or better yet, if you would like to join our, our little welcome to Calvary Slow, I, it, the heater's been on. So it's going to be nice and warm. So even if you don't even want to be there, you can just come join us and get thawed out. How about that? So I'm going to pray for us right now. We're going to just sing just a brief chorus. We're going to respond to Jesus, and then we'll partake of communion together. So Jesus, we thank you for the way that you have invested yourself in our lives, but not, not only coming into our world to take upon our sin, our death, our shame, our guilt, but to bring us into a place of life. That's your aim. That's your hope. That you sought after Thomas. You sought after Peter. James and John. All of these others that have been off living a life that was, that was different than what it looks like to be living a life as if you were truly resurrected from the dead. That's where we want to live. So help us right now, God. Meet us in those places. And right now, if you can think about areas, where are those places where Jesus wants to meet you? You need an encounter. Not necessarily seeing it an experience, because that experience may not come, but an encounter with Jesus. What are those places of pain, those places of hurt, those places of confusion? Where are those areas in your life right now that may be Jesus, if you were to come this instant, would find you there and he would ask you, what, are you, what are you doing? Why are you here? Why are you doing this? This is not who you are. It's not what I've called you to. Are there places like that right now? And if there are, just, just know the voice of this God. He's not angry. He's not disappointed with you. He's not tapping his foot with frustration over you. He loves you. And he's here for you. Ask him. Trust him. So Jesus, right now we come. We tune our hearts to you. We ask you, search us. Know those areas inside of us that need to be transformed. Words can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious 
Let's sing that one more time. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. friend of mine that had um, had a child with a pretty severe disability and it was a very obvious disability and I remember one time she was sharing with me she said you know my child has this very obvious everyone's aware of it place of pain in their life you don't need to guess where the place of pain in that child's life is. It's very obvious. It's just right there out in the open. But she says, you know, one thing that she realized, she grew up in the church, she says, one thing I realized is that my place of pain is, is not so obvious. I hide it. I'm, I have the power to hide it. Behind smiles, behind little selfies that I post on Instagram, behind my happy demeanor, demeanor I, I'm able to hide my place of pain. And she was describing how that's that's one of the challenges in really encountering the resurrected Jesus. Is that we put up these pretenses. We put up these walls and these barriers. And they become these impediments for us to truly, fully encounter what God has for us. So right now, as we go to the table, as we hold in our hands a little cup and the bread, we are reminded that... The basis of our relationship with God is that God himself took upon himself our brokenness. That's the idea behind broken bread. It goes from a loaf, full loaf, to being broken in two. And now that bread that's been broken in two, and then in a four, and then in an eight, and then in a 16, and then in a 32, and then you get the idea. That becomes the means by which now we feed and we feast, and we are made whole. This is how Jesus brings his healing. He himself takes our brokenness, our pain, as we give it to him. So that's my encouragement to us. What do we need to give to God? What do we need to just be transparent and honest to encounter this resurrected Jesus that's inviting us to trust him? There's plenty of material that John says that I've given to you so you can mold it over in your mind so that you too would walk away and have confidence that Jesus is the king over your life. So Jesus, right now, thank you for the bread. Thank you for the cup. We partake of it together. and We are reminded that apart from you, Jesus, your grace, your kindness, your goodness, we would just continue to remain in our own status of brokenness, hiding it all, acting as if everything's fine, putting a big smile on everything, and... 
walking around as if life is okay, and it's not. We thank you that with you, that we can be transparent and honest and just say, maybe it's not okay. Maybe we are broken. Maybe there are areas inside of us that we're deeply ashamed of. And yet we thank you that even in spite of the shame that we carry, you yourself invite us to trust you. And that's where we're at right now. We want to trust you. So as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are doing as an act of trust and confidence that you are the king of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together.